Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome to Training with Casey, and I'm your host, Casey Cover. And tonight, I want to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is the intelligence of animals, or maybe a little more accurately, how to get to that animal intelligence, how to be able to see it, evaluate it, develop it, encourage it, and put it to good use. So I don't see this kind of training discussed very often with animals. In fact, very, very seldom. But the good news is I'm seeing more and more of this kind of activity. And I have recently seen marine mammal trainers all over the world doing wonderful work where they use interesting cues to trigger behavior. So instead of using a verbal cue, maybe they use a musical cue or a scent cue, showing that the animal both can perceive and differentiate between the scents, for example, but also that they have mental plasticity in being able to recognize that this thing now has a relationship, this scent, which doesn't smell like the activity we're going to do, which doesn't directly have anything to do with the activity we're about to do, can nonetheless quickly become a signal which triggers that particular activity. Wow. Now I've been working with this fairly, I'll say fairly formally, but then I'll I'll explain that a little bit. Since 1979 or even earlier. And in 1978, I was working at Mystic Marine Life Aquarium. And I was also working with students with special needs. I learned sign language and I was teaching sign languages, sign language to the dolphin that I was assigned to. And I was teaching her how to spell things like her name in sign language. And she could respond to that. That was pretty exciting. When I got to the National Zoo, I decided to make a systematic language out of graphic symbols. So I took linoleum and I painted, uh, or I made white squares for words that represented activities or actions and gray squares for words that represented food. So for example, all food symbols had a one inch strip of black down the left side of the square. And then if it was fish, it would have another mark. And then it would have another mark to to denote which kind of fish it was. 
And for activities, some of the activities were kind of derivative, like, oh, we're going to have a vet exam. And in a vet exam, we would typically have an eye exam, an oral exam, an ear exam, take the temperature, collect blood, give injections, etc. So we could make modifications on a vet exam symbol to denote all of these things. The only problem was that when you use a physical symbol like that, it becomes cumbersome to use them. So the welders at the National Zoo made a rack for me. And I would hang my linoleum blocks on this rack using shower curtain hooks. And I don't even remember at this moment exactly how many symbols I had. But let me say they were heavy and they were big stacks and I'd put them all out on the rack. And then I would ask Selkie or Gunnar various questions and they would go to the rack and ding, 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 ding. They'd make all the choices and they were done. I'd ask them everything I could think to ask them about the words that we had represented on that rack. And those words were just a, a tiny fraction of what they were capable of learning and what we needed to be able to discuss meaningful things, things we needed to get done together and so forth. So from there, I went to developing a different way of communicating with the animals. And I developed a binary system, which is very, very simple. If you are a surfer type or you've been to Hawaii, you'll recognize this, right? And what I'll do is dip the thumb while I name what choice is being assigned to the thumb. And then I'll dip the little finger and I'll assign the name that's, be, or I'll name the word that's being assigned to the little finger. So if you're not seeing the video to this, I showed the shaka shaka sign, okay, the hang loose sign. And so that presents as your fingers kind of curled into a fist, which is facing the animal. So the animal can come straight in and touch your fingers easily. And then animals like horses that don't necessarily have great detailed vision, they can slide out to the side that they want to make their decision on. And this works great. You don't have to carry anything with you. You're not dependent on any device. You almost always have your hands with you, all things being equal. So, if you're wondering, well, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you use a computer? Well, the animal, first of all, the computer stuff is so small, even on a large screen, uh, unless it's going to be really cumbersome to use a computer, no matter how you do it, with an animal. 
You're going to have to have a computer screen. The animal's going to be have to be able to see it in the lighting conditions, which if you're outside, is not very easy or practical. Uh, if you're going to have really big symbols on the computer screen that the animal could easily see and touch, then you're not going to be able to have very many of them. Whereas with your hand, you can assign an infinite number of things to either finger or thumb. And you can use either hand. And it's easy to vary the position so you're not always making an animal touch one side or the other. For example, if you always assign the thumb to yes, and the animal got lazy, and you said, do you want food? Yes. Do you want to go out to play? Yes. Do you want to see your friend? Yes. Uh, do you want to stop working? Yes. The animal's only touching one choice in one position. And after a while, you have to wonder, is that animal actually listening? Is he actually responding to a choice? Or is he just saying, oh, she wants me to touch. And then she'll bring me the next thing. So I like to both vary the position. I often vary the hand. So I don't just use my right hand. I might use my left hand. And I'll vary the choices that I give. Do you want this? Yes or no. Is it a hoof pick or other? Is it a hoof pick or a rope? Is it a rope or a hoof pick? Is this on or off? Is it over or under? Is it around? Is it between? Is it left? Is it right? Is it north? Is it south? You get the drift. Now, the challenge to the trainer in using this kind of a system is that the trainer has to stay ahead of the communication process. It's kind of like playing the game, I spy. And then the person has to ask a question that will then help them narrow down and find the answer of what's being, uh, what the, what the, you know, game player saw that they're trying to find. So if I want to ask my horse, the name of an object, she cannot directly name that object. And her eyesight isn't so great that it's easy for her to look at a table of items and pick out the one thing. You know, she's got rather large lips. And so you would have to have all the items spread out far enough that she could get her lips around one thing. And her eyesight isn't so great. And she could chip a tooth if it's a metallic thing that she's trying to manipulate. It goes on and on. So she cannot verbally say the name of an object. And even picking an object out of a collection has a lot of practical difficulties. So what we can do instead is ask her to select the word for her object. So 
The word could be the actual name of the thing. Um, what do you want? Do you want an apple or a carrot? Do you want an apple? Yes or no? Do you want an apple or something else? Do you want me to take this apple away? Yes or no? And so it goes. So if you have one item out of, um, my horse knows definitely over 500 names and concepts. How do you get to the one thing that you want to talk about? Uh, if, if you've got items, then you can ask her to choose the name of the item or to choose the function of the item or um, some other aspect of the, you know, the property of the thing you're talking about. So for example, with Sarah, I've got videos up where we ask, is this a food or a tool? And she quickly sorts things. She understands the purpose of these things in our lives. And so she'll sort them. And then if I said, which I did, and there's a video of this, we're going to sort, I think, yeah, it was one of the two, right? A red and a white bucket. And we're going to sort food into the red bucket and tools into the white bucket. Does this go holding up some object, does this go into the red bucket or the white bucket? So let's look at that for a minute. What are we seeing the development of here? Why do I ask all these stupid questions about things and their purposes? And on a more fundamental level, I am working with Sarah to develop and talk about our understanding of the world and the elements in it and how they relate to us, how they're relevant to our needs and purposes. So might start out with a particular kind of food and, uh, you know, one that I know she likes. So I have different kinds of treats. And I try to make the treats useful in some way to the animal. So I have clove balls and I have ginger balls. And both of those things are spices that can be helpful to the horse. So I can ask, this is a clove ball. This is a uh, ginger ball. Which do you want? And I bring those both into proximity so that Sarah can reach directly and choose which one she wants. Now, news alert, she almost always chooses ginger over everything else. Ginger over cinnamon, over cloves, and, and other things, right? But if ginger isn't there, she will often choose cloves over other things. But that's a direct choice. The object is right there. She can smell it. 
And she just reaches forward and gets the thing that, you know, the choice, one of the choices that she's offered. So what's the purpose of that? Well, it tells me what her preferences are and whether those preferences stay the same. Are they stable? Does she want different things at different times? And it depends. For example, when she's grazing right now in the early spring, I find that some days she wants to eat dandelion flowers. And some days she wants to eat plantain. And some days she eats wild onions. And other days she may not eat any of those things. In the very early spring, she eats a lot of purple dead nettle. But when the plants get older, she no longer seeks it out. She loves mugwort and goldenrod and ragwort. She loves to eat those things. And I've never seen a time when she doesn't love them until they get old enough in the season that they're actually dried. And I have another horse that likes them even when they're dried. So I, I can learn a lot about the horse and what's important to them and what they like and what they seek out and when they seek it out. So for example, plantain may have properties that help the lungs and ginger definitely has properties that can soothe the digestive tract. So I'm on the lookout for uh, signs that that might be an issue for Sarah, for example. Okay, so that is a reason to give animals direct choices. So now let's go another level up and let's, let's assign a word to that choice. So instead of just holding forward the treat that Sarah could choose, I name the treat and then I use my binary toggle and I say, this is a ginger. Do you want the ginger? Yes or no. And then the horse will make a choice accordingly. Or I could say, this is a ginger. This is a clove. Which do you want? And the horse could just come forward and touch the choice that she wants. Now, that means you had to already teach her the concept of want and which and you versus me, etc. There's a lot of work in it, really, but it goes very, very quickly. So there we have a degree of abstraction. But I hesitate to use that term because it turns out that uh, we talk about degrees of abstraction and we generally talk about, for example, systems. So the first degree of looking at a system would be to look at the whole complex system and name it something like language. And then the next level would be maybe what language it is, the name of the language. And then the next one would be maybe the parts of the language, the verbs, nouns, this and that, et cetera. So as you've got more and more specific, 
the there would be fewer and fewer items in that group. So this is a little bit different because here we start very specifically, we have an apple or a clove drop or a ginger drop. And we're then going to talk about that thing and how it relates to the animal. Do you want it? Do you want it more than you want this other thing? But then we could talk about other things. Is this a food or a tool? And then if I was uh, inclined, I could say, hey, we're going to keep all the foods in the red buckets and all the tools in the white bucket. What bucket does this go into? It's a ginger drop, food or tools. Red or white. And it turns out Sarah easily climbs up that ladder of more and more abstract choices. Abstract where, you know, you're not directly grabbing the thing you want. You're talking about uh, traits of it and how those traits affect, you know, where you're going to put it and, and other things like that. So as we work to develop our ability to communicate with animals, we go on a long and wonderful adventure. But let's back up and retrace that adventure in a slightly different way. First of all, let's look at the de definition of cognition. And according to Oxford dish, dish, bleh, Dictionary, sorry, Cognition is the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. Wow, that's very complex, isn't it? Thought, experience, and senses. Senses tell you what's out there. Experience. You can look at that is how what's out there affects you directly. And thought is how you process what you sense and what you experience. There's a lot going on there. So what is metacognition? Metacognition, again, according to Oxford Dictionary, is the awareness and understanding of one's own thought processes. Do you know how to study? Do you know when you've studied enough to pass your exam? Do you know when you've studied enough to ace your exam? Do you know how to remember all the things you need to remember? Do you know how to build and use tools to remember things? Tools like mnemonics, tables, lists, rhymes, anchors. These are all tools that we learn to use to be able to create and preserve 
and use our memories. A simpler definition of metacognition is thinking about thinking. But I'm thinking maybe the definition should be knowing how to think and how to test your thinking and how to know and how to test your knowing. So now let's go to why we want to do this. If you're a zoo and you're paying keepers and trainers to help you take good care of these animals and breed them and present them to the public and you know get their medical care done and to be safe with them and all this, where does all this cognitive training come in? Why should we all care about it? Well, if you are presenting animals to the public, one of the best things about it is it's very motivating to most animals. The animals like to work on cognition and metacognition. They like to test their own abilities. They like their abilities to be recognized by others. So for example, when I'm working at a stable and I'll be working on building vocabulary or testing vocabulary with a horse, often all the horses around will head, hang their heads out and watch exactly what we're doing. And if you look at videos that I've posted about working with the ho horses, you will often see that exact thing happening. And sometimes I will point it out. For example, Sarah's best friend at uh, the stable is Fedora. And she stays in the stall right next to Sarah's stall. When I'm working with Sarah, Fedora will often come to the corner closest to where Sarah and I are working and she will watch us carefully. If I then go by and offer her an opportunity to do the same things I just did with Sarah, she will often choose to take advantage of that opportunity. Or if I've been working with body parts with one horse I'll walk by another horse and that horse will reach out with his muzzle and gently tag my shoulder. And when I turn around and look, the horse will be putting his face out toward me. And I'll ask them, do you know this? Do you want to do this? And I will go through and start naming the body parts, the nose, the nares, the lips, the muzzle, the cheeks, the chin, the jaw, the nose, the forehead, the fetlock, the frontlock, the ears, the left ear, the right ear, the left eye, the right eye, open eyes, closed eyes, you get it? We can name 13 body parts in a minute often, and the animal will retain that information most of the time. And if they don't, it's no problem. 
we'll just remind them and then ask them again. So in our process, we teach, teach, ask, ask, ask. We teach one idea. We teach a related, but usually an opposing second idea. And then we ask the animal to confirm that they understood, that they got that information effectively. So it might be, um, is this an apple or an orange? Is this an orange or an apple? Is this an orange, yes or no? So those are three questions about orange versus apple, okay? Now, what else besides motivation? Well, when you cover this kind of information where you're systematically naming everything, the animal understands more. They understand what people are saying around them, what they're talking about, who they're talking about, what's about to happen. And it makes it even so that somebody that doesn't know that animal could give them information effectively. So for example, in the perception modification process, we teach animals to get easy. Now, once we've done that and really taught them what that means, we then correlate easy with other related terms. Chill, relax, settle, get zen, quiet, still. These are all related. Why do we do that? Because sometimes animals get lost in hurricanes, for example, and maybe an animal control officer or a good Samaritan picks that animal up and tries to help them. And maybe they don't need know to say to that animal, okay, just get easy. But maybe they'll say, okay, settle down. I'm trying to help you. Okay, get calm, chill out, relax. If we have already correlated all of those terms with something the animal really understands and has mastered, like self-relaxation in the case of get easy, then this animal can quickly understand what these people are trying to get it to do. And they can choose to cooperate and help themselves in doing that. If the person says, I need to check your leg, I need to hold your leg for the count of five. If the animal has learned all of these things as we routinely teach them, he's gonna know exactly what to expect. It's going to relieve uncertainty. It's going to make the animal feel more comfortable and more confident. Now, when the animal is not experiencing uncertainty and he can see and assess what's going on, he can think better and make better decisions. He's grounded. He understands what's going on. And he can narrow his focus to see what he could do 
best in that situation. So for example, with Sarah, she's an Arab and Arabs are known to be very hot blooded. In other words, if they get startled, they tend to run and they tend to run pretty fast, but that's often dangerous. I don't want Sarah suddenly running into traffic or running over something that could injure her or injure it. I remember one time I needed to wash there and I dropped her lead rope outside and she knew to just stand for that. And she was very good about that, but I needed to go inside and get a hose and she was a little bit uncomfortable with hoses and getting washed. Meanwhile, I had two young girls there visiting. One was four and one was five. And I told the two young girls, you can play right where you are, but if the horse starts to move, you go behind that board. And I told Sarah, you've got two young girls here, they're fine. But if you feel like running, run in place and think about it. So we have a convention that when you feel like running, you need to think about it, which means you're going to run in place while you figure out what you want to do next. I only ducked my head in for 20 seconds. But nonetheless, for some reason, Sarah got anxious. And true to the setup, the two young girls immediately went behind the board and Sarah immediately started to run in place. So Sarah made a better decision. She had a clear path that she had developed and tested in helping her to keep her wits about her. Uh, disaster averted. So the animals can think better. They have more options for you know, strategies and resources to use to solve problems and they can make better decisions. Now here's another thing. The animal can be more self-directing. Sometimes when you work with people that don't get a regular education, there can be a big need to develop self-awareness and self-direction. So one of my esteemed colleagues, she was my assistant, she was fantastic. And she worked with a woman who had severe autism. And she was, this woman was very intelligent but she did not process things the way that most people process things. And my friend would see this woman shivering, but the woman didn't make a move to do anything about it. She would sit there and be unhappy and hunch her shoulders together and shiver. And my friend developed a process of saying, are you cold? And the woman would get thoughtful and she would say, yes. 
And then my assistant would say, would it help to put a sweater on? Yes. Do you have a sweater? Yes. Where is your sweater? So together, they would follow the train of ideas to recognize the problem and then to solve the problem. Then when finally they got the sweater, can you put it on? Do you need help? When the sweater was on, then there's a time to think about the effect. And animals really need the opportunity to think about the solutions that they choose. And all people need that. And so she would ask, are you warmer now? Are you glad you got the sweater? Do you need to keep a sweater in the car, etc.? Okay, so that also ties in with the thinking better and making better decisions, right? But when the person or the animal knows that I might get cold, and so here's what I might need to do that. Then they can make decisions about things. So with Sarah, it's supposed to rain tonight. Do you want a blanket, yes or no? Do you want this blanket or that blanket? Do you want to stay in tonight or do you want to go out? Would you like a clove ball or a ginger ball? Would you prefer an apple or a carrot? And so it goes. All things being equal. If you know what your animal likes best and you provide them every one of their favorite choices, they will not be as happy and motivated as they will be if you provide them the opportunity to make their own choices and to acquire what they want and need on their own. Self-direction is not just a process. It's a resource and it's a highly motivating resource. Now, if you doubt that for an instant, just consider that if an animal is purposely doing something to frustrate you, the trainer, a great strategy is to ask the animal to do exactly that thing. And they will not want to do it as much as they did it when you didn't tell them to do it. That's a mouthful. But if you're experienced working with animals, I know you will recognize this situation. So if the animal runs away and you say, okay, run, run faster, keep running. Can you run longer than that? They will want to quit running most of the time. Whereas if you say, stop running, come back here, da, 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 they'll keep running. They'll keep frustrating you. Self-direction is a valuable commodity, a valuable resource. So getting back to our list of reasons to work this way, 
an animal that is self-directing and knowledgeable about how to operate in and on its environment is happier. He's safer to be around. That's number six, safer. He's healthier. He lives longer. That's eight features so far. How can I know that the animals live longer? Well, because I started my seals and sea lions at the National Zoo in 1979 on these kinds of practices. And when sea lions had an expected lifespan of 20 years, my male lived to be 27 and my female lived to be 30, I think, or maybe even 31. My gray seals, longevity of a gray seal was expected to be 30 years. Male longevity was 33. My male lived to be 38. My female broke all records at 43. My horse is currently 32. My conure lived to be 32. My monkey lived to be 32. It goes on and on. All of the animals that I work with have tended to be very long life. And therefore, I'm concluding that this is a big part of it because this is a big part of what we do. But it has other benefits. It ups our game. It makes what we can accomplish together more complex, more detailed. It makes our communication together more effective. So our communication is more precise. It's more effective and it's richer. We can talk about more things, more aspects of things. You know, it's not just this is a nipper. This is a nipper and we use it on your hooves. It's a tool. I keep all the tools here. If I ask you to pick a nipper, look, I put a leather tab on it so you can easily pick it up. Can you carry the nipper? And so it goes. Um, I taught my dog to be able to go into the loft and uh, of the barn. And I had put some tabs on a few tools that I often needed. And I would send him in to get those tools and he'd bring them out, carrying them by the tab. So that was safe on his teeth. It saved me a trip of getting off the tractor and climbing up into the loft and going and getting the tool and coming back. And he was happy to do all that. So we can now accomplish more complex tasks together and we can accomplish them better. So when I needed to go out and uh, let's say I needed to take straw bales in the front loader of the tractor. And so I'm going to need something to cut the strings or the wires on the bale. So I can ask the dog, can you just go ahead and get those? So while I'm loading up the straw bales or the round bales, whatever it was, then the dog is going to get the tool. And as soon as I've got the things loaded, I then put the front end loader right up to the loft. The dog jumps in with the hay and the tool and we go down and get our job done. 
Now, this is a good thing, a good way to work. It's a lot of fun. It's more fun for the animals. A big challenge in training is to keep the animals motivated. And to keep them motivated, things need to be interesting. And to be interesting, they need to be changing, developing, empowering. And all this complexity supports that. The animal feels empowered and good about himself and about things when he can do more, when he understands more, when he takes more agency in his own life and in the operation. Because when we work this way, the animal aligns his purposes with ours and he will come up with solutions. He will see when there's a problem and let you know. Here's an example with Sarah on this. The people at the stable let me know that they were taking Sarah out to the field and they put her halter on and then they needed to get another horse. So they told Sarah, I'll come back and pick you up, but I'm going to go get Allie. Forgetting that Allie had moved to another place. So they came back with Nash instead of Allie. And Sarah stopped and looked at the other horse and looked at them and looked at the other horse, clearly indicating you don't have Allie there. You have another horse. And so the stable owner said, I'm sorry, Allie's gone. So I had to get Nash instead, at which point Sarah was happy just to go with them. But they didn't do what they said they were going to do. And Sarah made sure she let them know. Here's another thing Sarah's done frequently with me. She will let me know when there's a problem that she thinks I should act on. So in one case, our other horse affair uh, had recently lost her eyesight and she would often get very stressed over changes. Like if an animal got moved or if she got moved, or if they moved the water trough or anything like that. So one day I was walking up the road and I heard a horse whinnying, calling out. But I didn't think much about it because they often call back and forth to each other if one is taken out of the field, for example. So I figured that's what it was. Not so. Sarah comes running up to me where I am at the fence Shoots me a look like, hello, come with me, runs back. And when she gets directly across from this other horse, I now see that it's my horse that's upset. And Sarah's making sure that I'm aware that there's a problem. And then I went in and, you know, talked to the other horse, helped her calm down, so on. Okay. That's a lot that we've covered already. To review, we've covered the definitions of cognition and metacognition, uh, 13 different reasons of why we might want to develop that, how I developed a process for uh, two-way communication and why I developed it the way I did, 
And let's just talk about uh, one more thing because uh, it, we'll do a second podcast on this. And what we'll talk about tonight is how to build cognition. And there's an easy way that everybody can start to build cognition with their animals. And that is to build vocabulary. So we call it name and explain whatever you do with an animal, do a running narrative where you tell the animal what's happening around you, what's going to happen, uh, how you want to act, who's there, etc. So it might be like, I'm going to turn off the light at the count of three. One, two, three, light goes off. Okay, are you ready? I'm going to turn the light back on on the count of three. One, two, three. By the way, in case you're wondering, the reason we count to three is the animal needs time to process what you just said verbally, especially if he's been asleep or something. So you build vocabulary about, you know, what the items are. This is your toy. This is your cow toy. This is your, uh, you know, penguin toy. This is your horseshoe toy, whatever. But also, this is a pillow. This is your bed. Here's the difference between your pillow and your bed. Here's your crate. Here's your exercise pen. This is the backyard. This is the courtyard. This is the field. Um, this is your brother, Larry. This is your sister, Mary. We are walking. We are running. We're going to walk to the end of the street, and then we're going to run across the street. We're going to run for 15 minutes whatever it is, we name it. The individuals involved, the locations, the activities, the objects, the weather, the everything. And we're going to also develop concepts. Is it this or other? Yes or no? Left or right? North, south, east, west? Northwest? Northeast, Southwest, Southeast, medial, distal, proximal, near, further, ventral, dorsal. How many minutes? What direction? How many steps? We name all of these things and we cross-relate them. And when we cross-relate them, we're developing mental mapping. So for example, as you name all the body parts on an animal, there's a lot of them. You would name eyes and ears and shoulders and feet and hips, head, tail, tongue, nose, maybe teats, maybe claws, some of those things, there's only one of. 
many of those things come in pairs. When the pairs, it's helpful to teach the animal left versus right. I need your left eye. I need your left paw. I need your left side. Can you put your right side up here? Now, when you teach left versus right paw, you can even teach them that they have a specific target to go to. And at National Zoo, polar bears were taught to put their back up to on the uh, wire that was between us and their, you know, them, the exhibit wire, or actually a holding area wire. But anyway, now how do you teach a polar bear to turn his back to you and stand up and allow you to examine his back? Well, it's very simple. You teach him to touch his right paw to one target, his left paw to another target. We put these targets on poles. We then cross them and put them far enough away that the only way for the polar bear to touch both of them with the correct paw was to turn his back to us. So we reinforced that, we named it, and we had it. Now, all of a sudden, it's not a problem to look at the back of a polar bear. Score, okay? Now, we would exercise the ability to cross-relate all this knowledge. Can you show me your left foot? Can you show me your left eye? Can you show me your left hip? Can you show me your left side? Can you show me your front feet? Can you show me your rear feet? Can you show me all five of your toenails? Can you show me your hoof, etc.? Okay, and we made sure that we kept interrelating all these things. You have a toy. Can you show me the toy that's on the left? Can you show me the toy that's also a tool? If it's a toy, where does it go? If it's food, where does it go? And so we progress. Now, once we have done all this teaching, then we have to keep those skills active and keep developing. So we're going to exercise these skills, knowledge, and abilities regularly and keep growing them. We're going to make a bigger and richer atlas of their environment, and their world, everything that happens in there. Okay, so what do we have left to cover? Well, we're going to go back and review these things next time, but we're going to talk about classes of things and useful concepts that every animal can benefit from knowing. And maybe you'll contribute, maybe you'll share some of your things that you're doing and concepts that you've found useful and ways that you're teaching and getting more information from the animals. Um, it's so interesting and it's so much fun. Anyway, 
Thank you for joining me. And I look forward to next time. Take care. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.